Let's dive into our text. We are in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Uh, we're reading verses 1 through 19. Um, now, before we dive in, we're looking at this theme of a superior priest. But before we dive in, really quick, have you ever been in a conversation with someone who can switch between topics and not get lost? Like, I I'm not good at that, guys. Like, if you start me and, and you hook me with something, give me the end, right? Uh, there's times that, like, I, I will sit with my wife and maybe her sister or her friend or her mom, and I'm, I'm in the conversation with them, right? And they'll start talking about this, this baby that a friend of theirs all had. And they're like, yeah, did you see him on Instagram? He's so cute. Oh, my goodness. And then they're like, did you see his baby sneakers? He had, like, baby Jordans. I know this coworker who has those same Jordans as an adult, and she bought them at that favorite store that all of them love. And I'm here like, were we just talking about the baby? And so we circle back somehow, and they seamlessly just flow right into it. And I'm like waiting to get back to the baby. And so here in our, in our text today, the author of Hebrews is doing something similar in chapter 7. The section continues to build off of an argument that he introduced in chapter 4. The section is basically talking about this argument of Jesus being our great high priest. He started that in Hebrews 4.14. And in chapter 5, he began to explain how it's possible that Jesus could be our great high priest. And he gives three reasons. So here's a quick recap. Jesus is our great high priest because he's a sympathetic priest, right? He was fully man and fully God. The second reason is because he's the son of God and he was appointed by God to be a priest. And third, here's where he starts to lay out this argument. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He quotes Psalms 110.4. And before the author unpacks what that even means, he, he pauses this argument in chapter 6 to give the readers a warning about apostasy and also to encourage them to believe, uh, as we heard last week, on God's promises to hold firmly to God's purposes, to hope confidently in Jesus as our forerunner, which brings us back to his original thought. Let's go back to the baby. Jesus is our superior priest. And now this passage is the fourth mention of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. Not much is said about Melchizedek in the scripture outside of Genesis 14, Psalms 110.4, and the book of Hebrews. That's it. But the author is going to lay out four important premises that will inevitably conclude our big idea this morning. And if you're taking notes, check out this slide because here's our big idea today. Our big idea is simply this. We have a better hope to draw near to God in the superior priesthood of Christ. And this is important for us today for a few reasons, but I'll give you three. One, drawing near to God is a problem for simple, sinful people like you and I. Why? Because he's holy. God is perfect, and those who draw near must be perfect. And the challenge we see in the Old Testament is that God desired to dwell among his people, but sin had to be dealt with. And so he placed this temporary system in place, the temple and the sacrificial system, to deal with it temporarily. But we needed something permanent. We needed something eternal. 
The second reason this idea needs to grab hold of us today is because we often try to draw near to God through our good behavior. Some of us have been plagued with perfectionism. I could say amen to that. That's me. And some of us are so discouraged that we have become unconcerned about what God requires. And sadly, at times, we either put our hope in our good performance or we just throw our hands up. And so when you put your hope in your good performance, you do what uh, Pastor Matt Chandler would call putting God in your debt. You're saying, God, I did this. God, I did that. God, I serve in the church. And when you pray and things don't happen, suddenly you get mad at God. That's what happens when you pursue perfectionism. But if you're discouraged, if you feel like I will never reach the standard of perfection, there's no point in even trying, there is a high probability that you walk around with a daily dose of discouragement before God. You probably walk around feeling unworthy all the time. And here's the third reason we need to get this. Drawing near to God may sound unpleasant when you feel at odds with God. We'd rather avoid God than for him to see our sins, than for him to see our blemishes, for him to see our imperfections. And so we seek comfort in, we'll seek comfort in isolation or we'll just distract ourselves to avoid dealing with the sins that are destroying us. The sins that are lying to us, the sins that God wants to save us from. And the good news for you and me today is that God has done something through Christ that nothing and no one else can do. And you might be struggling with that today. But catch this. Some of the original readers were having the same struggle as you. Some of these original readers were struggling to see the uniqueness of Jesus. And there was no priesthood in their mind other than Aaron the Levite in the Old Testament. They couldn't see how Jesus changed the whole game. So let's open up together. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. And my prayer is that by the end of our time, you would see and believe that we have a better hope to draw near to God in the superior priesthood of Christ. Let me read the text for us, and then I'll pray. Amen? Let's read. For when God made a promise to Abraham, I'm sorry, for this, Melch I'm sorry. <laughs> for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had promise, had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in other cases by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, 
for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is a lot to unpack in this text today. But Father, I pray we don't get lost in the details. Help us, Lord God, to zone in to what you want to tell us today. Father, open our hearts. Make us sponges, sponges that we would just absorb, soak in your truth, your love, your grace. Thank you, Father, that you are superior in every way. We submit this time to you, Holy Spirit. We lean on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So you see there's an argument going on here. And I don't know about you, but have you ever walked by two people arguing? You don't exactly know what's happening, right? <laughs> and that's kind of what this may feel like for you. There's an argument going on here between the author and the readers. And so he want, what I want to do before we dive in is I want us to understand what he's arguing for, right? Because he's laying out four premises. And those four premises are basically our outline this morning. Here are the four premises he's laying out in, this, in, in, in his argument. Jesus is a better hope to draw near to God because he is the priest king forever. Secondly, he is the one who blesses us. Jesus is a better hope to draw near to God because he has the power of an indestructible life. And finally, Jesus is a better hope because he's the one who makes us perfect. So let's dive in again into these opening verses. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest Forever. So he opens his verse with the word for, which obviously implies that he is arguing here. He is bringing an argument. He's laying it out. And what he's doing is he is taking this story that happened in the Old Testament that's familiar to the readers when Abraham encountered Melchizedek in, in Genesis 14. And from the part that Melchizedek plays in that story, the author will show how Melchizedek prefigures the priesthood, the high priesthood of Christ. And so when you get a chance, if you want to know what that text is, it's Genesis 14, 17 through 20. That's the original story he's referring to. 
And to give you a summary of that, uh, remember when Lot went to Sodom? Poor Lot, just had some bad judgment, man. He went to Sodom, right? And when he went to Sodom, there were kings that were coming to attack Sodom, and they did. They did, and they captured it. And they obviously captured Lot as well. Well, Abraham gets a crew of guys together, and he goes to war, and he rescues Lot, and also rescues Sodom from these kings. Well, on the way back from that war, the king of Sodom was actually going to come out to meet Abraham, of course, to give thanks. But Melchizedek comes out to Abraham, and he brings out bread and wine. And not only does he bring out bread and wine, Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God. And also, he sees that he's a king. He is a priest king. And, he, and so in the story, we see that, that Melchizedek blesses Abraham, which is significant. And I'll explain that in a second. And he also, Abraham gives him a tithe. And so he uses this story to kind of posture Melchizedek as the one who is greater than Abraham. He's showing that, that, that Melchizedek is superior. He's, here's why. It, it, off of the story, we see that he held dual notable offices. He was a priest and a king. Those are both respected offices and positions. Number two, again, he blesses Abraham. He receives a tithe from him. And then we also see that his name has great meaning. That he is the king of righteousness. That he is the king of Salem. King of peace. And lastly, he has, without, he has no beginning and no end. So with all this, the author's concluding that Melchizedek resembles the son of God as he continues as priest forever. God is showing through the greatness of Melchizedek the uniqueness of Jesus. Melchizedek was foreshadowing Christ. I mean, let's compare them. Can we do that? Let's, let's do a side-by-side -side comparison of Melchizedek and Christ for a moment here. According to the story, Mel Melchizedek, his name translates king of righteousness. His actual name translates king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which means he's also the king of peace. This Jesus is a true and greater king of righteousness who graciously accredits to us his righteousness. He's also the greater and truer king of peace who brought peace between God and us. An ultimate blessing to our lives. Melchizedek, when he saw Abraham, he brought out bread and wine to him. Doesn't that remind you of a certain supper that happened in the Gospels? Jesus brought bread and wine in the Lord's Supper when he established the new covenant in his broken body and his blood. And also, side note, the fact that Melchizedek has no genealogy doesn't necessarily mean that he had a divine origin or a divine nature. But rather, it stands out because in this culture, to be a priest, there had to be a genealogical record. They had to know where you came from that actually gives you the authority to be a priest. Melchizedek didn't have that. There was no record of it beginning and no record of it ending. But what it's truly foreshadowing is the eternality of Jesus. That Jesus had no beginning and Jesus has no end. And for this reason, we too can conclude that Jesus is the priest king forever. What does that mean for us? Well, the first thing that means for us is that we don't have to seek our righteousness and peace anywhere else. 
We don't have to seek it in our parenting. We don't have to seek it in our relationships. We don't have to seek it in our reputation, our wealth, or status. In fact, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man and its way leads to death. And Jesus himself said, listen, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6, Jesus is the true king of righteousness. We cannot seek our righteousness in our performance. We have to seek it in the king himself, King Jesus. And he's not only the true king of righteousness, he's the true king of peace. The name Salem comes from the same root as shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. This word means more than the absence of war. It signifies the presence of a positive blessing. Listen, for you and I, this results, this peace is a result of the finished work of Jesus. Look at Romans 5.1. Look what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider this for a moment. If you don't, if you don't really know this, I want you to think about this. Why would we need peace with God? Because our sin separated us. Our sin made us enemies of God. And Jesus, you remember one of his most amazing, most beautiful teaching when he calls people to love his enemies. From the very cross, he does just that. Instead of condemning and destroying his enemies, he takes the place of his enemies. He takes the penalty for their sin. He absorbs the righteous wrath of God to show love to enemies. He did that for us. And because Jesus is God, he's therefore eternal. So what that means is that he is truly priest and king forever. We can have confidence in his rule and reign in our lives. We can trust that the righteousness and peace that we have through him, hear me close, will never fade. Why? Because he shortly is our priest no matter what you've done, no matter what you said, no matter what you thought, he is a priest, king forever. And this is such good news for you and I. Because as our priest, we have a representative before God. And as a king, we have somebody who has welcomed us into his house. As a priest, we have someone who cleanses us. As a king, we have someone who provides for us. As a priest, we have someone who sanctifies us. As a king, we have someone who defends us and secures us in his family. And this is true, not just yesterday, not just in this moment, but because Jesus has risen, because he lives forever, because he is divine, this is true forever. Praise God that Jesus is our priest and king forever. And in verses 4 through 10, he continues to unpack this greatness of Melchizedek a little further to make his point. Let's read how Jesus is also superior because he is the one who blesses. Let's look at verses 4 through 10. Look how he starts this, this, this verse. He says, see how great this man, referring to Melchizedek, was to Abraham, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. 
that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. Let's stop there for a second. Paying tithes in the ancient world implied a certain level of subjection to the one uh, on behalf of the one, the one who's paying. Think about it. From the spoils of victory, an offering would typically be given to the gods in a way of thanksgiving. You know, Abraham wasn't necessarily doing that, but he gave a tenth of the very best to Melchizedek. Now, we know that Abraham was a great man. Come on, like Abraham is a legend to the Jews. He's a hero. He was the patriarch. God himself called Abraham his friend. And he's also known as the father of faith. He, he's definitely a hero. And not only that, out of Abraham came the tribe of Levi, descendants of Abraham. And that tribe was given the office to be priest. But that, that office was given in connection to the law that came through the Mosaic period, right? Through the Mosaic law, they were given this, this office to take tithes from the people, from their brothers essentially. So the only reason the Levites had any, like the, 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 the Levite people had any subjection to the priest was because of the office and the title. But he's saying that's not true of Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't just come out as one of the brothers. And, and, and here's the thing. Let me, let me bring this in modern terms, okay? Let's bring it to our day with a story. So me and Joey went to Comic-Con in Philadelphia a couple years ago. First time I ever went. If you never heard of Comic-Con, it is... Just awesome, okay? I'm just going to say that, all right? Everything from movies to comic books to cartoons, you're just seeing all of the inside stuff. People are cosplaying. There's costumes all over the place. And, and then there's, like, classic cars from, like, Back to the Future. And, and just, it's just awesome, okay? And so we went, and, and I remember we were, it was the first time we ever went. And so I remember we walked through the section that had a bunch of, like, booths and, and tables. And there was people lining up for these tables. And, and again, since it was our first time, we didn't know that this was basically where famous people would come and people would line up to get their autograph and a picture. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. Let's go line up until I saw that it was like $50 for a picture and $70 for an autograph for the guy who was in Power Rangers. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no way. But if that was Muhammad Ali, I think I lined up for that one. I think I'd definitely line up to take a picture with him. But the truth is, Muhammad Ali isn't charging me for a selfie. He's not paying me for an autograph. There's a sense in which because we have an admiration or because we have a level of respect or because they have achieved some, some, some beautiful art in the world, something great they put in the world, that we are subject to them as we pay to take a picture with them. Make sense? In the same way, Abraham is giving tithes because he is subjecting himself under the greatness of Melchizedek. So here's the point. If the patriarch, Abraham, paid tribute to Melchizedek, then it also sh shows to serve that he's greater than Abraham and his descendants. The office of priest that came through the tribe, that came out of Abraham, that, that Melchizedek was greater than all of them. He didn't come out from among them. And this is why his greatness stands out. And not only does it stand out in receiving tribute, whoa, it stands out because he was the one that blessed Abraham. Look at verse 7. 
It says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Let's stop there. The giving of a blessing was a significant act in antiquity. One commentator adds this in the text. He says that, that the blessing is an official pronouncement given by an authorized person. Pronouncement, a formal authoritative announcement. I think the closest example of that in our day too is like, man, when you went to your girlfriend's dad at the time to ask for her hand in marriage, that man was authorized to say yes or no, right? He, she's lived in his house and you're going and saying, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And him as the authorized person in her life who has been the one who has provided and protected and shepherded and led her and cared for her, he's the authorized one to say, yes, you can go forward with this union. In a sense, what did the father do? He gave his blessing. But that, we see here that when we say we're blessed, we're saying that we stand by the official pronouncement given to you and I by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> Take that in for a minute. Because I got to pause here and thank God that the superior blesses the inferior. That by faith in Jesus, our superior priest, you and I can receive the blessing of God. And his blessing is the pronouncement of his love, grace, and mercy in your life. See, the devil may accuse you of your sin. But let me preach this to you this morning. Jesus has pronounced you righteous. The enemy, the guilt and the shame, the things that you felt may, may say, no, you are a hostage to your past. But Jesus, the king of kings, has pronounced you free. Your guilt and shame may pronounce you dirty or accuse you of being dirty and sick, but Jesus pronounced you clean and whole. Your sin may say you're unlovable, but our priest has pronounced us beloved. You know, I remember a time in my life when it was a weird, it was a very weird time. I was battling, battling depression, and I didn't know it, Right? And so every day I would pray, and I would pray like this. Literally, I would start every prayer like this. God, I'm sorry. And I would just start praying. Every day, Monday, God, I'm sorry. I'm not praying much. I know, I know I've been busy, and I know I shouldn't be, and I know I should be choosing. I'm sorry. And then next day, Tuesday, God, I'm sorry I'm impatient, man. I'm sorry I'm not even focused. I'm like, like I'm walking around. And then I remember the day that the Holy Spirit was like, hey, man, stop. Why do you start your prayer like that? And I was like, well, I feel like a disappointment. I, I feel like, I feel like I'm annoying you or frustrating you because of my sin or because of my imperfection. But because of Jesus, I thank God that the Spirit spoke the gospel to my heart that day. He says, because of Jesus, God is pleased with you every day as he's pleased with Christ every day. Because of Jesus, I have been pronounced a joy to my Father in heaven, not an annoyance. 
Because of Jesus, I am a son and not a sorry excuse for a person. Because of Jesus, I am pronounced a delight and not a disappointment. So when discouragement comes, when you're beating yourself up, when you're wrestling with self-hatred, remember what the Lord has pronounced about you. You are blessed, and he is the one who blesses us. Let's continue reading. As he closes this premises that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Let's read in verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So verse 8, let's stop there. He says he's doing the contrast between those who received tithes, the Levitical tribe, and because they're mortal and would eventually die. But in Melchizedek's priesthood, he receives tithes, but for him, there's no record of his death. That's why it says that for, for Melchizedek, there's, there's the one who is testified that he lives. Right? The writer does not say that Melchizedek lives on, but that the testimony of him is that he lives. You see what he's doing. You see what the author is doing here. Again, the author is pointing to Jesus as being risen. He is the one who has testified that he lives. And then verses 9 and 10, you see that the author wants to leave no doubt about the superiority of Christ. He basically says, in a sense, that Levi, in the DNA of Abraham, paid tribute to Christ. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think the author of Hebrew might have been a lawyer, man. Because he went... He's like, let's shut this argument down. And listen, you and I pay tribute to Jesus with our lives. We pay tribute to Jesus with our obedience, with our worship, with our sacrifice, with laying down what we want for his will and his way. We do it with our time, talent, and treasure. Freely we have received, therefore freely we give for the sake of Christ and his gospel. We pay tribute to him because he's the one who blesses us. And because of Jesus' pronouncement of us, we do have a better hope to draw near to God. And the better hope is a hope of an indestructible life. Look at verses 11 through 17. Let's look at the power of an indestructible life. He says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So let's break this down. Here he continues the argument, but his argument is saying that the system that was previously put into place was not able to make perfection attainable. And that's where we started, right? Perfection is a problem because we can't draw near to God without perfection. So he's saying the problem with the old system is that perfection will never be attainable that way. Which means we can never truly draw near to God. And so the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a temporary solution to the problem of sin. But imagine, imagine if that system was still in place today. 
Do you know how many animals will have to die for our sin? Do you know the day-to-day struggle of trying to stay clean and pure? Let's be honest. If this system was still in place, you and I would be walking around with goats. And for this reason and many others, a change needed to be made, but not only to the priesthood, to the law itself. See, the change in the law is seen in that Jesus did not belong to the tribe that was recognized by the law as the priestly tribe. Remember how we talked about the genealogy? If you're a priest, you came from a certain tribe. That was the law. But Jesus didn't come from that tribe. He came from the tribe of Judah. And Moses said nothing about that. So for Jesus to become a priest, it means that we're changing some rules. We're changing some things here. Jesus had to change the game. See, the Hebrews, the Christians were were struggling. They were wavering in in holding on to their faith. The the Jews were more than likely criticizing them. Like, man, Jesus is no king. He was crucified. Jesus is no priest. He's not even of the tribe of Levi. That's how the, the Jewish people would argue. This makes no sense, man. Now, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, right? The tribe of David, the tribe of kings. So it's possible. That could make sense if you want to say he's king because he came from the line of David. But I don't understand how you're telling me he came from the line of, of, of Judah and he's a priest. That makes no sense to me. How could this be? Well, like the priest king of Melchizedek, or priest king Melchizedek, he is a priest, that's, but it's not based on lineage, The text tells us why Jesus is far superior. Because it's not on the basis of a changed law. It's on the basis that Jesus has an indestructible life. Look at verse 15 and 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. But by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus changed the game. He changed the game. And listen, I'm in property management. Things break easy. That's just the nature of my business. I, I, I'm, I, part of what I do is getting phone calls because, hey, my toilet ain't, work, ain't working. Things break easy. A drip of water. A drip of water that goes un, uh, uh, un, unsolved, that you don't even remedy it, and it just keeps going and, co- and going, will literally destroy an entire house. Things break easily. But not Jesus. Jesus is actually indestructible. You know, I remember when, you remember when uh, they came out with phone cases? I think they were called otter boxes. They claimed that they were life-proof. Yeah, I was like, life-proof? Jesus is truly life-proof. Jesus is truly indestructible. Jesus can truly never be broken down. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be beat up. He cannot be banged up. No matter how much anyone may criticize Jesus, they cannot break who he is. He is eternal. He is unending. He is indestructible. Praise God. And so again, he quotes Psalms 110.4. He goes back to that verse. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Forever. Why? Because Jesus faced sin and death. Jesus faced the wrath of God. 
Death tried to crush him. But on the third day, Jesus arose because of his indestructible life. And you and I can have this indestructible life. This resurrection life. By faith in Christ, by trusting him. Today could be your new, the, 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 the start of your new life in Christ. The day your eternal life begins. The resurrection. You know what I love about the resurrection? The resurrection is like the ultimate cutscene. In Marvel movies, right? They have this thing that at the end of the movie, after the, like the credits are gone, they'll give you a snippet. And the purpose of those cutscenes are to do two things. Number one is to encourage people to know the story continues. But the second purpose of that cutscene is to tell you that something better is coming. The resurrection is the ultimate cutscene. The resurrection is the thing that tells us that when death comes knocking, the story doesn't end. The resurrection is that cutscene that tells us, hey, something better is coming. And so here we see that because of this indestructible life, you and I can stand against the fear of death. We can stand against suffering. We can stand against difficulties because we know that it is not going to end here in this life. And because of this, in Christ, we can truly say, just like 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10, that in Christ we are hard-pressed Every day, on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Listen, in a few moments, when we close, you'll, you'll have a chance if you don't have this indestructible life, if you're feeling like life is crushing you right now, you'll have a chance to come up and receive prayer at the front. You'll have a chance to ask your great high priest to fill you with the indestructible life. He's the one who has it. He changed the game. When we could not draw near to a perfect God with our imperfections, we now have a hope because of the one who makes us perfect. Let's look at the fourth point. In verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So again, four. You hear how it starts? Four, that lawyer talk. <laughs> He's landing his plane here. Four indicates that the author is leading up to his conclusion. He says, on the one hand, a former commandment signifying the Levitical system that was built on the Mosaic law is set aside because it was annulled in the work of Christ. And, and it's set aside because it was weak and useless. And that sounds kind of harsh to say. Against the law of Israel, but that's what the scripture teaches. Look at what Romans 8, 3 says. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The law made nothing perfect. Let me say that one more time. The law made nothing 
perfect. That's what made it weak and useless. Verse 19. But on the other hand, <laughs> I thank God there's another hand. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And his name is Jesus, our superior high priest, who through his perfect life, death, and resurrection made a way for imperfect people to be made perfect. Stop and think about this for a minute. Because of Jesus, the Father sees you and calls you perfect. You are perfect in Christ. And in a few chapters down from our text today, we're going to see this in a few weeks, but I have to give you a little spoiler warning. So let me show you what Hebrews 10.14 says. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if you're here, listen to me, and you're a perfectionist, and you're burnt out, and you're running hard, and you're restless, you can stop today. You can rest from all your striving. You, you don't have to strive for something you already can have in Jesus. And if you feel the opposite, perfection, God calls me perfect, you know what I've done? Do, do you know about the abortion I went through that, that I had, that, that I paid for? Do you know about the pornography addiction that I had for years? Do you know the addiction that I keep in the closet? You're telling me I can have perfection? I don't believe you. I'm not worthy of that. Well, what our text is saying is that if you feel like you got stains on your soul or your conscience is heavy because of shameful thoughts, Jesus is saying, I'm the high priest who comes out to you saying, come here, come to me. I can make you perfect. I can wash you white as snow. I can bless you. I can pronounce you clean. And this hope is ours for a single purpose. And this is why he's arguing. This is, this is literally, this is what I love. He argued all that to get them to this one point. He says that through this, through this hope that we have in Jesus, we would draw near to God. That's the only reason any of this matters. Talking about goats and sacrifices and temples and all that stuff. The, the one thing that matters is getting close, drawing near to God. Jesus has removed every obstacle, everything that could ever get in your way, just to tell you, come on in. Come in close. This hope is ours. In closing, in the Old Testament, only the priest could enter into the holy place. Only the priest could enter into the holy of holies, where the presence of God would dwell, while everyone else would watch from afar. And that's not true of us today. I, I, I'm not closer to God because I'm a pastor. Praise God. If you feel far today, you don't have to stay far. We can draw near. Jesus has given us a better hope. It's not you fixing yourself. It's not you getting it right. And he's a better hope because he is the priest king forever. His righteousness and peace will never fade. And he makes you righteous and gives you peace. Jesus is a better hope because he's the one who blesses. He has pronounced blessing over us. So you can stand confident in that blessing. 
Jesus is the, the, the better hope because he has the power of an indestructible life. You and I have life eternal that's indestructible, so have hope. Jesus is a better hope because he's the one who makes us perfect. He lived the life we couldn't live, had the dead, died the death we should have died, that we would have a perfection we could never earn. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as they come up, I also want to invite our elders and our life group facilitators. If you're available, we'd love for you to come up. Um, they're going to be in the front here to pray with you. If you felt the heaviness of your own sin and the weight of all the things you've been wrestling with, today's the day you can come to your high priest and receive help in time of need. Maybe you've been overwhelmed, burned out. Maybe you've been striving for perfection only to find yourself disappointed and discouraged in yourself. Jesus can give you rest. Come, we'll pray for you. Maybe you're here and you can't shake the feelings in your conscience like you're dirty and unworthy. Come, Jesus can make you clean. And maybe you have been at odds with, you have been at odds with God. Maybe you've been angry with him. Maybe you feel like he's an enemy. Jesus is the king of peace who brings peace between us and God. If that's you or if you have any other prayer needs, please, please come forward. Our brothers and sisters, they're here to pray with you. Would you stand with us as we sing together?